0: You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 719. Consider this a courtesy, John Wick. audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Well, guys, today on the show, I welcome back the record holder for the longest episode in the history of the show, Mr. Albert Hughes. Now, Albert, if you don't know who he is, is the director of classic films like Menace to Society, Dead Presidents, From Hell with Johnny Depp, Book of Eli, and the new John Wick spinoff series, The Continental. Now, Albert and I sat down and discussed his approach to The Continental, what's going on in Hollywood today, and so, so much more. Albert is one of my all-time favorite guests to have on the show. So without any further ado, please enjoy my entertaining conversation with Albert. Albert Hughes. I'd like to welcome back to the show returning champion, Albert Hughes. How you doing, Albert?
1: So, so apparently we still have the record.
0: We Alex. still have the record, brother. It was, it was during the COVID times. Uh, you were stuck in Amsterdam, literally stuck in a room somewhere by yourself. And I think I was the only beacon of hope for a conversation about film for you. <laughs> we sat there and spoke for three and a half hours, four hours, and and it just kept going, and we were we were on Skype. It was either, we hadn't even gotten to Zoom yet. We were on
1: Skype. What's it? was it? Skype? It was. Skype. It was. It was Skype. What? Wow. Because I, I never hear about over. Skype anymore.
0: I didn't move over to Zoom yet because I was one of the last holdouts on Skype.
1: <laughs> so it was. Oh, uh, I it still was, have it. I still have the app. Do you still have the app?
0: I can't know because my my I got the new computer and it doesn't no. Like <laughs> I couldn't record uh-huh. anymore. It's an old thing. But uh, man, well, that, that's an epic conversation we had, man. It's been one of the most downloaded episodes we ever had. And then, of course, when I heard about you, when I heard about it in the press, I, I emailed you right away. I said, hey, man, congratulations. I cannot wait to see what you do in the world of John Wick. Uh, and, uh, and you did not disappoint, my friend. I, I have seen it and it is- Oh, thank you. It is, uh, like I was telling you before, it's so nice to see a director direct in television, uh not not grabbing on anybody else's style but that you can see a very distinct a point like point of view when you're working and mm-hmm. it's like those things that you and i grew up with in in the 80s and the 90s are like these kind of directors who like you know put the cameras move the cameras did pov shots they're like oh look at that that's nice
1: <laughs> you know what I, mean? I i you know it's also it's a new world now where you know Back in the 80s and 90s, when we were growing up, too, it's like uh, the the film directors, film writers, producers kind of looked down on TV. Yeah, of they course. Know, yeah. Stream, there was no streaming back then. but And now, like, the best writing, the best acting, and some of the best directors are coming to those formats. And, I mean, Netflix owns half the best directors in town right now, you know, literally. Um, the, they're just pipeline the, movies.
0: But you know what? It's really interesting because, and I've heard this from a lot of people, it's like a lot of the independent filmmakers who would have been in independent film in the 90s and the early 2000s are now going to television because that's the only place they can actually make a living because there is no real output for market. The marketplace doesn't open, it's not as open as it used to be for independent film as it used to
1: yeah. be in the 90s. It's 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 uh, like the Marvel movies, the Temples, the IPs, they've squeezed out the mom and pop movies or the midsize movies or the genre movies. You know, like Blumhouse is doing well with their movies uh, the horror genre but, this, budget but, jason's because,
0: got, but jason's got the sweetest deal in, in hollywood i mean are you kidding me like i thought when i yeah. talked to him on the show i was like dude you like you're doing like 10 million 15 million dollar movies being distributed by universal like widely like that's the the sweetest deal in
1: use yeah and some of those movies are only five million dollars yeah. you know and they have these sweet deals for everybody involved and he has a really good business model and it's really um not only sensible but very kind to the talent involved you know he's one of the few mm-hmm. guys out there that that's doing something like that we actually share the same accountant, um, and I did work with him on uh, on, on, on Good Lord Bird because uh, uh, his his company produced that. Um, yeah, but it's a new day and time, and the, that's what's strange is like with this series, the Continental. Um, it wasn't set up like a typical TV schedule—ten episodes or eight episodes—where you're rolling into the next episode with your cast and crew, then bringing in another director, guest directors, and then you know sometimes those episodic uh, TV shows. Have that lull in the middle where they're trying to save money, and you can tell her filler episodes. And we've talked about me and you, I do distinctly remember talking about last time in our marathon run, <laughs> David Fincher. oh And the one thing, you, if you look at what David Fincher did with Mindhunter, and you look oh. at whatever the showrunners are, I got to look up who the showrunners are on Handmaid's Tell. There's a very consistent style and quality control going on with those shows. Both shows could have been shown in a theater and you would have known uh, none the difference between uh, whether it was a TV show or, or mm-hmm. a movie or a one-hour episode. Um, but it, it all came down to quality control. And then there's those other like really nuanced de- details, like what I learned, the difference between TV and and feature filmmaking is a, a TV's a writer's medium, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. And features are a director's medium. So when traditionally the writer's medium's been going on, it. It's less about style and, and tone of of the mise on mise en scene that you know you learn in film school, <laughs> uh, and more about close up close ups close ups of yeah. uh, close ups uh, wide shots and then close ups. Yep, yeah, and that street. they still were to this day they are still think that way and they're slowly coming out of it. I'm talking about at the executive level when you start getting notes. Well, where's the close up for that shot? And it's like, well, people have these big screens now. You don't need that close up anymore. So then the cinema, like I give this it's a bad good analogy i don't know it's like a guy's on the phone with his girlfriend she's breaking up with him and he's very lonely right And mm-hmm. tv you see there's a close-up shot because the writers are leaning on their dialogue in film you learn read the masters like tell the, the story in the shot to go really wide and have him really tiny in the corner talking and looking small and lonely so the shot's telling you he's lonely and isolated and being broken up with and so is the dialogue but you don't necessarily need a close-up in his face at this moment right that's the difference. But there's a benefit to TV and what they do because I've been studying, like, I consume a lot of people, like, Succession and all those shows, you know. Sure. And they button the scenes with close-ups and the character's wheels are spinning. And it takes okay. you into the next scene. You're like, oh, I wonder what they're thinking. Or you might project on what they're thinking. And that's a very useful thing to learn from TV because cinema doesn't uh, feature the filmmaking, doesn't right. really do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, right now, also, there's this thing where it's like, If i'm making something or another feature guy is making something i don't want to change my style because it's a tv show i don't want to do more close so i want to respect the audience is going to read that shot correctly especially considering that the tv sizes have changed you know um so we still all have a lot of adjusting to do especially on the the executive and studio network side to welcome those filmmakers into the tv space for what they do without Constantly pounding them about close-ups, you
0: know. I would agree with you on that. And when I was watching this, I was noticing. I mean, it's this basically. There are like three movies. Uh, these episodes, mm-hmm. they're just three standalone movies with like tail, you know, like cliffhangers, essentially, or like the next. There's another episode in this thing. Um, it's a it's serialized in that sense in this miniseries that you've put together with Continental. Um, but the man, I gotta say, man, the budget. The production value on this thing must have been pretty impressive. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I mean, we all seen the Continental and John Wick, right? And we've seen it mm-hmm. done, but this is John Wick in the '70s, which is a great decade to do mm-hmm. this in, by the way. The it was I mean, I mean come on, it's, I mean, it's as fun as you could yeah. get just to, to play in that mm-hmm. in that era. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the visual effects, I was noticing the how the visual effects and the depth of it, the world creation that you did for the Continental, what was that? How did you approach doing it like that? And I mean, I assume there was a decent budget for this, but this is not a $100 million, $200 million show, but it looks like yeah. that. It looks like that. And we'll get into the action sequences well, in a minute because that's a whole other story.
2: Okay.
1: Well, maybe it's actually, I was going to hit on it earlier, but I forgot. It's uh, When I was talking about TV schedules and how they roll into the next thing, and there's no prep time for the guest directors. We only had one guest director, Charlotte Branson, who's been around forever, very capable. Um, but it's even very difficult for them to maintain the style, and it's a very hard thing to do to quality control, the tone and the look and all that stuff. But w- one of the reasons I did it, there's several reasons why I, I, I did it. One was when I looked at the way they laid it out, it was like a fourteen week prep leading into episode one, four weeks prep leading into episode two, four weeks prep leading to episode three, each thirty-five days a piece. That is not normal for T V. That's not a normal schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not even normal prep for a movie. Like twelve weeks, ten, twelve weeks is normal. Not 14, I was about to say. But that's they see that said. for. Yeah. But they see that fourteen as helping the overall too. You know, you're not just servicing one. Um so that was the first thing that raised an eyebrow. I go, Oh, they're Someone was smart. They're trying to in- ensure quality here, you know, and with a guy like me, don't give me prep, you know, because I'll use it. Um, <laughs> a lot of directors, as you know, don't use it, you know, and don't, um, you know, uh, you know, parlay that into some real um, security and, and quality basically. And then there's the other thing of uh, the WIC film producers talk to me first because I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. I didn't know if I wanted to play in an- another man or woman's sandbox um, but they, they talked to me about it and I was considering something else. And I, I go, I just want to have fun, man. I, I did, the COVID thing was really weighing on me, as you know, and <laughs> I, I think the audience wants to have fun. I don't want to do this social issue stuff anymore. Like I've done it. I'll go back to it maybe. But right now I have fun watching those movies. Why not? Basically. Right. And that was the real motive. Oh, and then you had me at seventies. Like you just said earlier, you had me with the seventies, right? <laughs> That's the era I grew up in and I was born in. I have a white mother who's listening to Pink Floyd, a black father who's listening to you know, James Brown, and I'm finally able to explore the the mother side of my upbringing. You know, mm-hmm. the father side has been tapped into greatly from the past movies, with fantastic R and B and hip hop and stuff. But yes. now it's like Pink Floyd is my favorite band of all time. No one would suspect that even some of my closest friends wouldn't know that. That is, I don't care what band you bring up, you start bringing up Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, I don't want to hear it pink Floyd, my my guys they're my guys and then it, the heartache of having to give that song to episode two which is a you know an episode i supervised and finished the the post on but i didn't direct it you know yeah and it yep. was uh kirk ward the showrunner uh and my friend my re- very good buddy now my partner in this who uh he was struggling with that scene because we just couldn't find the right score for it and we couldn't find the right and he came up with that choice and i go man that's one of my favorite songs like welcome to the machine right. so it was it was he that picked it and he picked a few others that i i uh, i was because uh, sometimes in needle drops you like i'm pretty i'm pretty good at, at it like 70 percent. but when i'm bad i'm really bad it's really off you know and <laughs> once you put it against the picture, you're like yeah what was i thinking i thought this thing would work and he he's the one that came with black sabbath at the end of episode one which was in this attitude kirk came mm-hmm. with that because originally I put it in more of an upbeat kind of, um, it's kind of a punk reggae, mur- it's called Murder. It's a woman singing murder, ooh, ooh, murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. know. And I thought, oh, this is such mm-hmm. a, a downer episode at the end because something tragic happens. I want the audience to leave for a week because I knew it was going to be a weekly show. I want them not to leave too down. And he kept working on me. He's like, Albert, it's know. not right, it's not right. I'm like, oh, okay. And then he brought this Sabbath track, and I go, ooh. ooh that's mm-hmm. that that's screaming revenge and, and anger so yeah i got meandered a bit there but
0: yeah you know but that's the thing you gotta try things before you say no to them but no when you were yeah. saying it and i know the scene and i know the ending of that episode i'm going no it, it would have not worked it's just like i'm already playing no. it in my head i'm like no it's not
1: i, I, I tried it. it i tried it the first few seconds like
0: ah you need anger you need revenge you need vengeance and that's what that song the energy of that song came out without question. Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, John Wick has created uh, an, uh, a bunch of movies, a world that is unprecedented, really, in cinema history. There is nothing like John Wick. There's just nothing like John Wick and what Keanu did and what the creators did and the actions and stuff. When you stepped yep. into this world to play, like you said, in Another Man's Sandbox, did you feel any pressure of like, I got it, man, this better bring the heat? Because every single, there hasn't been a weak John Wick film, in my opinion. Every one mm-hmm. has been like, dude, like this last one, <laughs> I saw it in the theater. I was like, this is, guys, it's really, like, you it's can. bananas. It was, it's, in, it's like so much action that you can't even, I'm like, how many years? Did, it's like almost like a, it was a kickback to John Woo
1: style. Hard-boiled. That's, even, that's true. Oh, somebody was bringing this up. No, like like a friend reached out to me yesterday was like, he didn't know I made this and accidentally watched it and then he could recognize it was my style. So he looked at the credits again and then he, he messaged me and he goes, it just reminds me of us watching John Woo in the night. We were I go, well, that's where Chad partially, he has a, a smorgasbord of influences and some would be shocked to know that not the John Woo part, but the Bob Fosse and musical part. He's into oh. musical and dance numbers. And when you talk to Chad, he'll talk about all these influences, um, you know, Korean cinema too, of course, Japanese cinema, um some of the same things overlap with both of us but i my favorite john wick of the four is three three just tickled me pink oh. like it's when you when you talk to the hardcore john wick fans they don't they don't care for three they love one i think their their order is now it may be one or four but they really have a soft spot for one it's one four two three mm. mine's in a completely different order mine three one two four and four um, is still I solid. <laughs> I it love It's solid. It's crazy. Like they do up the game. There's just weaknesses I have for three because they reminded me of being a 12 year old watching Indiana Jones, like that knife fight and that, that oh. I don't know, that museum of knives. Like I thought it couldn't get any better. And it just kept getting better and better. And then it ended with the guy's axe in the head. I go, oh my God, this is all. the sword fight in, on the motorcycles, which is from the villainous uh, right. um, Korean movie, I, I believe um but uh, again it was awesome and then who could have ever thought to smack a horse's ass to kick a guy in the face like there's so there's all and then there's the dogs the Halle Berry dog stuff like so it was speaking to the 12 year old boy in me where the difference with four was I thought four in the end what it took me a while to realize was more of a spiritual movie it is it came up it more is. spiritual yeah is Though it's one of the most, violent I didn't expect things. that I, one of the most violent things I've seen on cinema in quite some time, but it's it's, it's current, but I also violent. saw it with green screen, yeah. I oh. saw it though uh, early cut where the Arc Day Triumph you couldn't even see the structure when they were doing that, you couldn't see what happened oh, wow. to the continental. I was watching a lot of blue screen, and it was like a three and a half hour cut I, I watched at first, so when I saw it in the cinemas. I was I was shocked at like how good the VFX were, like that Arc they triumph thing, like how I'm, was, oh my, there was no there was no no Arc de Triomphe there. They did shoot it in LiDAR it and do all those things right, but right. how how realistic those VFX were, like I didn't know what that scene would become.
0: Oh, in, I thought in, in I thought they shot it there. Theater. I thought they shot it there personally. I said, not that you told me that. I'm like, I thought they shot. They did a fantastic job then, because I couldn't tell.
1: Yeah, well, there's establishers, you know, and even in the establishers, if you look closely, you can tell. That there's digital cars not not that it's badly done it's just that the speed they're going in that traffic unless it's you impossible. lock down all of paris it's impossible you know <laughs> um and of course we know how these things are constructed you and i so we're able to know even if it's really great vfx what the what's going on you know yeah
0: that. i know i thought they might have locked up you know you know, from one o'clock to four o'clock in the morning, something like that, because it was just looks so, so good. And going back to John Woo, though, I mean, you go back to those kid, the killer hard boiled, that is ballet mm. with guns. And then Wick is just taking it to a whole other other place, which then brings me to, go ahead.
1: No, was no, gonna say just before we get up with of John Woo, the big difference between then and now is that. John Woon didn't have those air guns that you can put up to somebody's face and, and see right. the recoil and hear a little sound that's so safe you can literally put up your eyeball. You know, mm-hmm. he was using real muzzle flashes. Stuntmen, they were getting hurt all the time because their regulations out there for protections aren't the same in China at the time. Um, like just running through stuntmen, right? He was shooting for 100 days and more. Like, yeah. you know, John Woo was going all balls to the walls without all the stuff that we have, the tools we have nowadays. <laughs>
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: And then you have someone like Chester Helsky who comes from that stunt background who specializes in that. And then he, he's found this perfect match with Keanu in that kind of world. And it's like a parallel universe, which is what's so freeing about doing the show. The Continental is like, you know, when I started checking up a list of why I should do something like that, this one of it was like, well, my brain is going to be free just to have fun now. So what's that going to be like? I didn't have any idea that I would have the most fun in my life on a set or in post or in prep. It was like an experience I'll never forget.
0: Well, well and going into the action, I mean, when I was watching the episodes, I was like, my God, this is this like John Wick level action movie level action so that this is it's not like if you're tuning in to see the continental and expecting like tv versions of john wick action it is not it is you could it's the same take guys it out, it's you could take it out and put it right into a hundred million dollar 200 million dollar movie and it would fit perfectly i was so i was like man and it's got balls well, it was ball, the same man
1: balls it's the ball. same guys it's the company that chad owns with david leach called 87 11 and some of the same people that were in some of the Jaguar films are part of the stunt team too. And Lauren L. the coordinator and action director was, uh, is from that, that, the uh, 87 11 camp too. And Chad had to bless the person that was being chosen for that basically before we started. And then they go and do this thing called stunt biz, which is wonderful. You get to see everything beforehand and make adjustments. And they do this really cool thing. The new school of stuntmen do, which is, um, First of all, they show you the stuff. The old school never showed you anything, right? Um, right. They also make use of the environment. And if the environment's not cool enough, we may rewrite uh where we're get, where this fight's going to take place. And it's interesting, I'm telling you, because there's one scene in episode three that's particularly catered to your audience in no a way. It's like when we talked in the past about when you have no money, what do you do with it, right? right. So right. Kirk had r- written this scene where this character, Lou, a black woman's being followed by um, this detective Mayhew. And it was going to end up in this like fight between the both of them in the streets. And I said, you know what I've always wanted to do, Kirk, a fight in the phone booth. You ever heard that expression, of fighting in the phone booth? Like, yeah, I've heard it. Or sometimes a boxer announcer, like, they're just bl- blowing each other in the corner. Blowing each other in the corner.
2: <laughs> hitting <laughs> each closer.
1: other. Hit, hit, hitting you other <laughs> <just, you know, laughs> Taking <laughs> blows in the corner. You know, there's, they've all skill has gone out of the window. They're just... It's a yeah, it's street fight. A street, fight. It's a street fight, yeah, it's a street fight. Yeah, a street fight in in close proximity. It's it, it it's a it was like watching a fight in a phone booth. So I said we need to do this for two reasons. One, I think it'll be cool because we can use the phone booth, the environment of phone booth. Two, this could be a lesson to people with no money in film school. Like I want this scene to be the kind of scene where they look at it and go, "You see, you can do something interesting without scope, and still tell the story and move on." and play play on kind of um i don't know what the what that's an analogy i guess or a metaphor mm-hmm. um play on something like that yeah we we did have the budget to uh, do what we wanted i didn't feel the pinch in any way like uh, you can give me 10 million dollars i'm not gonna feel the pinch i'll design the movie to the budget you can give me five i'll design the movie to the budget but what i always aspire to from the first movie is you give me 2.5 i want to make it little like seven you give me 10 i want to make it look like 20. And there's right. little tricks to do that we talked about in, in the last time we talked about, but people should know we each budget had a, pretty much the same budget as the first John Wick movie. Mm. That's it, well, it wasn't any lower or wasn't any higher.
0: Yeah, and and the thing is too is like when I was watching this again, I said this you use some of those tricks to get more you know bang for your buck because it definitely looks yep. more bang for your buck without question. Now speaking of stunt guys, this is my I love I love stunt guys. Uh, I was working on my uh, on, a, on a project that was working with a 24 stunt team, the twenty uh, Kiefer Sutherland's show uh, yep. back in the day. And I is it just me or are all of them absolutely nuts?
1: <laughs> they are. The old school guys are a different type of nuts. The new school di- guys right. are a different type of nuts. You, they you, they so all it, are like... <laughs> go ahead, sorry.
0: No, it's like I heard like when when I would go, listen, I need you to do this. I need you to do a gainer here and I need you to do a flip. And they're like, but can I jump off the second story? I'm like, no, I don't need the seconds. I'm, we're, we're good here on the first. Like, no, no, no. But I, I could do the second story. I could be like, I'm good. They're like, no, but look, I, I'm like, guys. What? And it was not just the yep, first. But all the, of them would always take it to 11, as they say in <laughs> the Tap.
1: Yeah, they're they're adrenaline, adrenaline junkies, you know, and they're like fighter pilots. Yeah. They're in this whole other mode, you know, and they they I, I recall from the past and it has moved to the new school. They have this swagger, this kind of arrogance and they need that arrogance in their job, you know. But sometimes you can misread the arrogance and, and not see the person basically, right? Um and they're they're very interesting, especially the new school guys that come out of eighty-seven, eleven, because they always over design like you're talking about that in a way. They want to give you more. The yeah. stunt guys never want to give you less. And you actually never. always never. have to talk a stunt person down. <laughs> Like, no, 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 dude, we don't really, if you don't, but also if you you're don't, the...
0: wrong stunt guy <laughs> or girl.
1: Yeah. <laughs> if they, if but also the dirty little, bump. the dirty little secret, the dirty little secret is the more times they do that stunt, the, the, bu- the, they keep getting pay bumps. Yeah. The, on how, depending on how dangerous the stunt is, they keep sure. getting these, these crazy pay bumps. You know, I didn't know that until four years ago, I found that out. I'm like, really? Oh, that's why they're so eager to do another, like they're limping to the third take. Like, yeah, let's go.
0: Let's go. Let's go again. Let's let's go again. Yeah. I mean, I I can only exactly. imagine. Look, with the with the stunt team that you had on the Continental. These guys, I mean, there has to be. I mean, I know they're professionals, but there's got to be some some damage, man. Damage on these guys. The body could only take so much. Even as a professional, that's so many takes. Yeah, you can yeah. only throw them down the stairs so many times, <laughs> right? I mean, seriously. Yes. At a certain point, even if they know how to fall, even if they got the gear on. And mm-hmm. at a certain point you just gotta God God bless.
1: Them, <laughs> yeah, and they and the, the difference is too is they they have to train our actors. Like that's what the uh-huh. fan base wants is to see their actors doing it. And we had this interesting story one day when the Jess Elaine is an actress who played Lou in there, the brother of Miles, Hubert, uh Ponty is the actor's name. But it just was you know, she's a very sweet woman and she doesn't like violence really, and they're training her, and she accidentally hits a stunt guy in rehearsal. And you know, we're not shooting, they're in the the, the warehouse doing this. And she's really emotional about it. She's really been, been yeah. out of shape about it. And I'm like, no, no, this, this happens all the time. Like, don't, don't worry. And we were all a little worried about her. Like, is she ever ever gonna be able to like just get over this? And she did, and you see, you've seen the El Camino fight with her in the back of an El Camino, mm-hmm. on episode two, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've seen the whole series, right? Okay, I've, so, seen mo- I've seen I've by- seen
0: most of the series. I haven't seen all of it
1: yet. I've seen most of it. Oh shit. You gotta get the three, man. We should not even- Okay, I- so we gotta come back with Kirk. <laughs> you come back with Kirk. Kurt- oh that I've seen the first two. Oh, I've not seen the third one
0: yet, because I-, I have a family. Oh, the the, the third <laughs>
1: the third one goes, I know. The third <laughs> yeah. one goes off the rails. But but she is in episode two in the back of an Al Camino, like kicking a bunch of people's asses, right? You see, and and then and she basically blossomed. Yeah. She blossomed, you know. But wait. I got to pause for episode three prepare you, because it's, it's going to feel like to you a very um, deceptive. It starts out like, Oh, this is kind of starting out like the others, you know, it's normally paced. And then it just takes this right turn and it just goes nonstop for 58 (laughs) minutes. So,
0: so you were trying to, you were trying to John wick for it basically just this nonstop.
1: (laughs) Well, it was a, it it was a hybrid because Chad has this thing, this thing he does. That's wonderful. Is that, um, because he has a two or two and a half hour movie and doesn't have to tell a three act structure and, and, and right, introduce right. too many new characters, sure, and sure. you have Keanu and the audience knows what he can do. You can wallow in a twenty minute set piece. I I can't really because I have a, a story to tell. I also don't want to bore the audience. You know I'm I'm very much into not having action fatigue happen. So it's deceptive in episode three because there are modules of action seemingly taking place in one set piece, which is inside the hotel. It's a raid. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty obvious at this point, it's a raid, you know, that Winston has to take power from this hotel and a revenge story. Right. Um, so it feels like one continuous action scene. It it actually isn't. It's one continuous raid that, uh, it, the way it affects your brain is, is you're watching a lot of action, um, because it, it, it jumps around to different locations within the hotel and different group members doing different things. Um, but it's relentless not in the same way as relentless as uh you get the Arc Today triumph and then you get the uh, dragon's breath scene from the above angle in the, in the <laughs> building oh and then you get the steps the, then you get the steps it was, it was, nonstop. Like, it was like stop. you put those three stop. back to back that's like 45 minutes straight of nonstop action you know it's it's, it's a lot for.
0: it's it's a lot now i got to ask you man because there's a there's a special actor who play who's in this in the show mr mel gibson How do you Mm -hmm. work with not only a legend? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But arguably one of the better directors of his generation, because he is a really good director
1: as well. How was it to work with him? Yeah. He's, he's, He's a pro. And once you get to three, you'll see he goes off the uh, hinges, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the process of working with him, you've seen in the past, like he does, he's very passionate, like Ransom or Braveheart or Road, towards my favorite. Hacksaw. And yeah. that's why we wanted him. Yeah. Hacksaw yeah. as, as a director, um, is, uh, he, he, he makes you believe in what he's doing in the movie. If he's playing the character, you believe, right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what, what I found was interesting is that he, those zingers and one-liners, that's him. He likes playing with words from uh, Lethal Weapon movies. That is him. That's what he comes with. That's how his brain works. And he plays naive on the set. He doesn't look back and look at everything. And like, what lens are you using? You know, and he acts like he doesn't know. He knows it. And he's watching everything like a hawk. And he doesn't go to his trailer, which it's a great thing to have with an actor. It's like they're not uh, slowing you down. Uh, he's very much, I think he said it one day, he goes, I'm a good soldier. and And he is. And he's highly intelligent on both sides of the camera. And it was just uh, a fun, like we had fun with the, the whole cast because um, I have some people in here like Adam mm-hmm. Shapiro, who's opened a pretzel business during COVID and it's all the rage in Hollywood right now and shappy pretzels, <laughs> who's a who's a one-liner, walking one-liner zinger comedy act, you know, um, that I work with the past. There's a few people I work with in the past that have this thing that I was dealing with with Mel too, like, they just want to go on the set and have fun. And they don't want to cause problems. They don't want any headaches. They don't want any drama. And those are my favorite kind of people. So he's cut from that cloth. And I've been hearing for 40 years how professional he is on the set. And it's exactly what I saw.
0: That's beautiful, man. Now, when you when you walk into an action sequence like that as a director, these are not simple not simple sequences by any stretch of the mat. It's not like, hey, punch, punch, punch. It, the movement, the camera... How would you how do you approach doing this? I know you've seen it a little bit of previous, but like if you're if you're talking to a young directors who are trying to get into action, how do you approach a, 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 like some of those scenes like that in the in the first episode, the stair sequence, going down the stairs with him? Who well, he looked like Keanu, by the way. He I mean he was on point, the main actor, uh, yeah. the main character.
1: Yeah, less training though. He only had three weeks.
0: Well, he but he looked. Like, I'm like, this guy looks like John. I mean, in the movie, he looks like John Wick. I was like, oh, wow, he's like John Wick style. That's how good
1: he is. And we are nodding to that.
0: Yeah, obviously. Yeah, because he's just, he was so good. It reminded me so much of John Mm -hmm. or of Keanu doing that. How do you approach that kind of scene as a director?
1: Well, I was very lucky because of the built-in nature of 8711 in Larnell. Is you you would think you would have to stress about it. If it's a younger filmmaker and you don't have a great stunt team, you're in trouble. Oh, sure. If you have a great stunt team, what I do with them is I I say, um I've learned in the years, it's like um and I think we we discussed it before, it's like sometimes let professionals be professionals if if you're trusting. And don't get in their way, let them do their job and then stir the pot every once in a while. I'll have my bullet points of wants. And for that sequence what I wanted was, very overall in a general sense, was um, um, Jackie Chan's use of objects and how playful he is with them. Yeah. So he's Frankie's carrying a chest with a point yes. press in it. And I, I kept saying, um, in my, it was bullet points written down, and I would talk to Lornell, I want him to throw it at somebody so that it distracts them and they can shoot it. That's very Jackie Chan. That's also sure. very Chesterhelski too, and John Wick it very much mm-hmm. fits in that world, but I remember first seeing it with Jackie Chan. It's a playful, playfulness with chairs, with objects, and stuff like that. Um, and then we would talk about the sequence, and they would design it, and then we'd start uh, adjust, making adjustments. Now, a lot of times the struggle between me and Larnell, a healthy, really healthy struggle and debate creatively, was how long he was going. The scene is uh, one page, that's one minute. You give me one minute, he would turn in six minutes, right? I'm like, Larnell, you're killing me over here, right? So there's a this would constantly going on, and that's part of the wick, w way of being trained in stunts. Is like they they do explore it fully, right? So in that staircase sequence you're talking about, I cut out a whole floor of violence. There's a whole two two sets of stairs that I cut out because I felt like it was undercutting the gag before and the gag after. And right. sometimes you have too much of something; it just undercuts itself because you can't focus on the peaks and valleys, basically. And so that was, even in a phone booth fight, the phone booth fight was really long when I first got it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, you'll see this really fantastic fight between these two women and episode three uh, on, a roof, on the roof of the Continental.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I first got it, it was long. And I told my editor, like, let's maybe cut back to somebody else and then cut back to this. And he just looked at me and said, no, this is Wick. This is Wick World. You don't, you don't have to cut away. We're going to stay in it and i think him and that's what a good editor does too is like when you're insecure as a director they just say stop no they did it like the scene you've seen it because you haven't made it to three you saw the adjudicator scene where Henchman's beating down that guy Mm -hmm. and that that atrium right so when i get the first cut of that because i love my offline sounds to be great um they put great (laughs) sounds and so it it's it, it was pretty much the same thing in the offline it was brutal and how many times he was punching them in the opening and I said, Ron, Ron Rose is my editor. I mean, he's a genius. I go, Ron, I think maybe there's too many punches on this guy's face. And right. the studio or the network's going to say something. And I kind of agree maybe it's a little too much. He goes, dude, dude, it's, it's the wick. It's the wick roll. There's, there's no such thing as too many punches. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll just keep it in for now and see if they say anything, right? They never said anything. And then I watched John Wick 4, and when he's, when he's punching Killer in the face to get his tooth, like... It's about the same number of punches. <laughs> but again, it's Keanu. Keanu has such a soft spot for the audience that he, he can pretty much he get he away get with away. anything except killing an animal.
0: Right. I mean, you could fall out of four stories, land on a limo and limp away.
1: Four times in the movie. Continuously. Yeah.
0: Continue. And then fall down 45 yeah. flights of stairs. Get up. Brush it off, and you just like
1: get shot off a building, get shot off a building by Winston Fall, fall on an awning and then on the concrete. Yep. Sure.
0: Why not? Yeah. Yeah. It's Keanu. Of course, it's it's Keanu. Now, with that said, so with that said, did you have any Easter eggs laid out throughout this episode, these episodes for John Wick? Yeah.
1: There is the John Wick Easter egg for the hardcore fans, there's the casual Easter eggs. And then there's a 1970s Easter egg. Like, Mm -hmm. let's go in reverse. So 1970s Easter eggs. Yen picks up Frankie after the staircase shootout. That's an exact replica of Travis Bickle's Taxi from Taxi Driver.
0: I remember. I saw Um, that.
1: Episode two. Yeah. Episode two, if you notice, late in episode two, a star-skinned hutch car appears. Red with that Nike white swoosh, whatever that is. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Episode three, right before that phone booth beat down I told you about, there's the warriors from the movie Warriors. There's the hearse with a uh, graffiti all over it, right? Then you have the obvious John Wick uh, kind of Easter eggs that are quite obvious, um, whether it's what they what we're doing with the coins, uh, what some of the rules are, what some of the changes in the rules are. Then there are the, the deeper ones, like in episode one when Winston gets the idea to go to the theater to see that old, decrepit theater where he finds his brother. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The scene before that, he's at a stoplight and he looks at a poster and it's a Marilyn Monroe movie. Yeah. And the name of the movie is Be Seeing You, which is from Wick film two. And I think the 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 deaf, the deaf uh, woman, I forgot her name. Um, she, she would constantly sign to him, be seeing you. And he would sign back after he killed her, be seeing you. So that's, that's the right. title of the Marilyn Monroe movie, because they wouldn't give us the rights to gentlemen prefer to blondes as a title. <laughs> um, And that triggers a memory. And then that line recalls again in episode uh, three of the show and also the adjudicator's license plate. She has a car, we reveal in episode three, but her license plate is a line from the adjudicator in film three, uh, show Filthy, right? Mm. So there's a bunch of them that, and uh, Kirk, the showrunner, he he itemized them all because um, Peacock Marketing and Amazon Marketing wanted it. Um, for their, you know, that's a really smart thing of them to do. They wanted it to to use it for marketing. Uh, and I forget until I see it, like, oh, God, there's that, there's that, there's a bunch of them in there.
0: So that's really interesting. So that was kind of part of the plan. All I mean, yeah, every once in a while, you, you'll you throw stuff in, but this was, like, really thought out. Like, where are you going to throw yeah, this? Yeah, it was Instagram
1: more... Stuff? Coming from me and Kirk being fans of the movie, it wasn't any mandate, there wasn't even, they didn't even sure. tip us off from the film side what happens in John Wick 4, although I saw it early in post for this. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing that, and it was so freeing in a way, they weren't doing what Disney or Marvel would do, which is like, they have these particular mandates you have to have to sure. do the show, to nod to the future. We we love that we could reverse engineer and know what we what the first three films were, we knew what that that was. And they, they just kind of trusted us.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: Um, I don't know why, but they did. And me and Kirk would just break down those movies and say, well, that would be funny if we can put that in there. And it's always fun to put Easter eggs. I think Easter eggs, like even if you're just doing a normal movie that has no reference to anything IP related. Mm-hmm. To put Easter eggs in there, nodding to other movies is always a fun thing. And in uh, episode three, you'll get the famous one. It, you have to really watch out for it for my favorite movie of all time, Midnight Cowboy. I'm walking over here, you know? Yeah, of course. That was a complete yeah. fluke <laughs> when that yeah. happened. Yeah. Well, now there. did you hear there's two different versions of that story now?
0: That that was not real. That I know is that it, it was a real cab, a real cab, almost ran over Dustin Hoffman. He's like, I'm, that's, that was the story. What's the story?
1: Now, there's a counter story that is actually believable because we know what goes on. They would have had to get a release from that guy to use his, his likeness, mm-hmm. the the cab driver, because you clearly see his face. And right. they would never have wanted to put the actors in that much peril walking across the street secretly recording. Um, And the line of dialogue I heard is actually written that the ad lib may be the line after where he, he talks about uh that could be a good insurance scam too i saw this story that broke it all down and i go hmm that's interesting because for years people have thought this but we got to hear it from dustin's mouth i guess
0: i mean and and he's not going to tell the truth at this point again he's just might want to live the yeah exactly out. i mean but, yeah i mean it was the 60s right it was the 60s if i'm mistaken it was 69 69
1: right? 68 it was shot 68 right. was shot, yeah.
0: so it was shot so it's the 60s would they need the release? Yeah, but it wasn't a public environment, so maybe like I that's
1: true. Yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> you can kind of get that documentary, but you could you, because it wasn't a public street. Technically, you don't need. I mean, and it was just a different. And world
1: they were doing day. that thing back then, where with the New York movies, they were shooting inside of a van with like the tinted glass to get shots like that.
0: Oh yeah, you like know? yeah, and, and without permits and just like running around sometimes yeah. because it was yeah. just kind of it was guerrilla filmmaking. It was kind of the beginning. And then the beginning, but it was like when they started to really start the indie vibe started. like I think Midnight Cowboy really kind of started that whole easy, easy rider, and you know, and obviously yeah. Taxi Bulls. Driver, yep. and Raging Bull, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was. I'm I'm curious if you talk to Dustin, Next time you talk to Dustin, um, let me know. I'll hit him up.
1: He's <laughs> in my roller Exactly.
0: <laughs> so um coming from a color bat, I was at the colorist for a long time as well. Uh, and had a post house i was looking at the approach to the color grading on this what'd you shoot this on by the way uh general what camera it
1: it was the the airy forget which model yeah D, dx whatever the fuck okay. it was, it looked like um, it was the same lens it looked yeah like but ARI. we it was degraded it was degraded because um we got the 1950s lenses. I may have talked to you about this before from mm-hmm. Panavision that no DPs want to use anymore because they're so old. They literally had to dust them off when I was doing Good Lord Bird. And they have all these imperfections and anomalies in them, right? And they, they, are, um, they were built for MGM by Pathé or Pathé. Pathé and MGM were somehow involved, right? They hadn't been used in years. And I had Dan Sazaki, who was a lens guru over at Panavision, who who, who services all the top DPs. And I just went in one day without my DP, because my DP was in a a different city. And I said, just give me the funkiest lenses you got. Just think of anything wild that nobody wants to touch. Even if it's cracked, just bring it. And then we started testing them out. And I picked this set. And later I found out, because I said, I would like a list of the films these were shot on. Or, yeah. And it took them actually months to get me the list. It was like a list of 200 films. But the three films that stood out to me were Dr. Zhivago, Cool Hand Luke, oh. and The Graduate. Oh. So oh you watching The Continental, yeah. you're actually seeing through the same exact lenses that shot those three classic films, right? Now, I could have shot with a Red, an Arri or a Sony. And I don't think you truly could know the difference because we're we're, we're not only doing that, we're also... Uh, deciding a lot we're yes. uh, Maxine uh, Gervais who was my colorist I spoke to you about last time who's done all my mm-hmm. projects dating back to Book of Eli which we talked about that mm-hmm. um she's fantastic she's an artist um she's my partner on every project like there is no DP director relationship without her that, that try if that trifecta doesn't work if the DP comes in and doesn't get along with her I can't hire him because she's she's my uh partner in this you know mm-hmm. um So she goes in and we start doing the grain thing again. We start, we don't do that that film grain, the one they license out, which is bullshit. You know, it's a a, a scam. Oh, that's a
0: complete complete scam. It's a
1: a scam. Okay. She scans, they've scanned every film stock imaginable from the past. Okay. Uh, For grain. And then she does a thing, and I don't know the technical terms for it, but there's different layers of color registration and mids, highlights, Mm -hmm. and You know more than I on this Mm -hmm, thing, right? mm -hmm. And how grain interacts with the mids and the highlights and the blacks. And she goes in and there's different layers to and degrees to it. And sometimes we lay in. We do the stuff where we try to um, have the imperfection. Like one close-up may be grainier than the other one. Or the wide shots are a little more grainy than the medium shots. So, So we checkerboard the grain. We pick the degrees of grain. 10, 20, or 30, or 40% and we our base level would let's say be 20 throughout the whole show and then we sometimes go to 10 and go to 40 um and it's a subconscious thing where you when you're watching it you feel a little bit of inconsistency that reminds you of analog
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um so there was a lot of things she did uh that she, she's a genius uh colorist um basically um like she's like I, she's gonna be mad that i said this. she's like the rain man of colorist um <laughs> <laughs> Because I tease I mean, her about is, certain things.
0: That is a compliment, but I could see where she could go, hey, man.
1: Yeah, but I tease <laughs> her about, we me and her, like, people come into our color sections and they see us bickering because she's so sensitive because she's an artist and she just goes hard to get it right. And, and sometimes I'll just say something just to fuck with her. <laughs> <laughs> but they think that me and Maxine are fighting and we're, we're not really fighting. We love each other and we're never mad at each other. Never, yeah. right? It's yeah. she'll pick, She'll pick on me and I'll pick on her. And she'll say something like, okay, so there's a transition I know you would notice. It's like, I like sometimes self-conscious transitions. So mm-hmm. it's tilting up from the beat down in the adjudicator and goes this atrium yellow yeah. circle. that Transitions a into a yeah. yellow light, right? Oh, I
0: love so, that. Well, I love that shot. Yeah, that's what I was the, talking about. That was the, one of the shots I was talking about when I said about directors. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So with her, like early in prep, I'll put in a shot list. Um, I'll put a Maxine dissolve, which is a customized dissolve. You know how that works. You're mm-hmm. pulling different image up. On the second, the B side, and you get to customize the dissolve. I said I put I'll, so I'll put in a shot list, and it's for the editor too because he has my shot list. So then we Maxine dissolve. I put it in quotation to the next scene, and it's a it's a yellow light. Da 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 da. I didn't know I I didn't explain it to my editor what a Maxine dissolve was because him and his assistant were busy online thinking it's a technical term from Hollywood, thinking, and I said no 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 it's my colorist who who does these <laughs> fantastic kind of creative dissolves because that was one. Like one session we were snapping at each other um, on alpha about, as I said, okay, Maxine, I need like a 48 frame dissolve here. And she just snickered at me and goes, oh, you want to dissolve here? I thought you wanted something more creative. <laughs> and I'm like, um, <laughs> well, sometimes a normal dissolve <laughs> works, you know, just so like, that's her. That's her.
0: That's amazing that they thought that was like a special term. Because th- to be fair, in Hollywood, there, there's always, since the beginning of time, there's all these weird names for certain things, you know, a Stinger, a B- B- 52, or a
1: B-52. Wilhelm Scream.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. And then people are like, yeah. what the- a Maxine Dissolve. Where's the Maxine Dissolve?
1: Maxine Dissolve, yeah. <laughs> well, now you know, uh, from your show, Indie Film Hustle, mm-hmm. a Maxine Dissolve is a custom dissolve from henceforth.
0: Yes, from henceforth, it will be called the Maxine. Yeah. It dissolved. I got to ask you, man. Look, I mean, you and I are a couple of old dogs. We've been, we got a couple, a bit of shrapnel under our belt. And, you know, when you and I talk, it's so much fun because we're in cinema and talking about what we, you know, our generation kind of grew up with. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see that coming up behind us, man. I mean, there are some. Mm-hmm. Where do you think 50, I mean, are they going to be doing, you know, this kind of like what you just explained with the grain? Mm-hmm. Like, are they going to be doing that in 40 or 50 years,
1: man? Is it, what do you think? Well, it's, it's the the TikTok generation now, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the generation that's born, I mean, a lot after us or just a little bit after us. We were, we were there from the, the analog to digital. We, we saw that, and I'm so happy we were that we know the difference between film. It's the
0: bridge generation. It's the bridge generation.
1: Yeah. yeah. And we know the difference between digital editing and film editing, and, you know, and it, it's so um, I'm so grateful that we got to see that.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor.: And now back to the
1: show. Um, there's something interesting going on and this is a subtle conversation or a more nuanced one um, about this generation it's like they're seeing like let's say a movie's out in the theater and um, they didn't put film grain in and they didn't do this and, and it's very clean it's a Marvel movie and It's very everything's very clean it's very digital it still somehow does feel like film because of uh, 24 frames because of the, the shutter um, motion blur and depth of field depending on how you use it those three things we talked about before right uh, that do convey the sense of cinema and it took a while for digital to get there because of those three things in image quality, right? Right, right? But if you actually play a piece of film, you go, whoa, <laughs> whoa, this is completely different. <laughs> oh, than oh one. God. Oh, and God. even me and you have been, been fooled into thinking this looks like film, When I actually no, it, it there's the whole other thing going on. There's registration problems, there's scratches, there's dust. A print. There's all this. Sort project. Of- project the print of Lawrence of Arabia
0: <laughs> and project uh digitally project the print
1: of a marvel movie and you tell me if there's a difference in the it's image. an analog it's an it, analog quality now there now i'm going to parse this argument out differently like i think you and i talked about this before i really don't get off on this whole film purist shit that the group of Agreed. filmmakers and their big Agreed. filmmakers talk about i think it's fucking bullshit it's mm-hmm. nostalgia um it it makes no sense and and excuse excuse me for saying this it's a Mm -hmm. bunch of white men who are nostalgic okay um they need to stop going against the winds of uh, they need to stop going against the winds of change and start Mm -hmm. help building windmills okay um and when i see a bunch of nostalgic old timers it triggers me as Uh as a biracial guy Mm-hmm. you start getting too nostalgic that goes down a dangerous road okay um, <laughs> Fair enough. let's just take all these let's take all the and i know I'm, I'm being harsh there okay but let's sure. take all these tools available to us and tell the stories we need to tell like some of them don't believe in di some Oh, i didn't have any vfx in this movie i don't give a fuck or, or or talking overly too much about imax like i don't give a shit is is it good that's all that the audience cares about is it good if it was shot in an iphone like tangerine It doesn't matter. Is it good? Um, But to answer the larger thing you're talking about, it's like um, we're we're in the world where everything's getting drowned out by too many voices on the Internet. And and like you know that because you have to find your niche and all that stuff. Um, So film guys talking about film and history, it's got to kind of die away with the new generation. And they're going to be talking about the films from our generation as being You know, they're going to be talking, it's not really our genre, they're going to be talking about Marvel movies like, like as if it's a Lawrence of Arabia. That's what's crazy.
0: But you know what, Quentin Quentin said this really quick. Uh, I saw an interview with Quentin and he said this really interesting. He said he saw, he had a conversation with a 16 year old and he's like, yeah, I was four years old when Iron Man came out. And he goes, for that kid, that is Citizen Kane. That is, you know, Lawrence of
1: Arabia. And Iron Man's a good movie. The first Iron Man is a great movie.
0: Iron Man is a fantastic film, but the point is that that is, I mean, if you talk to John Favreau, he's not going to like, yeah, it's as good as Lars of Arabia, or it's as good as, you know, all these. It's not, yeah. it's, a, it's a classic in, the, in that genre, without question.
1: But Well, it's, it's also like, it's just, yeah. Like, when me or you were younger, did you remember, I'm sure you went through the stage where you were at a certain age, you are like, I don't want to watch a black and white film when you are 12. Oh, oh it's black I'm and white, it's old. I like, ever, would never watch it. And then no, you no, got no, older, and you're it. like, oh, set so the samurai but nice. here's what happened during covid i gotta tell you about what happens because i've been to film school i got film books and i read and i watch a lot of stuff i have the Criterion channel and i started deep diving in the 30s and and being really fascinated by the fact that uh the technique of opticals and camera movement and lighting was at an apex in the 30s and i'm like well why is this like 30s 40s 50s it started to slow down by the 60s it was out unless it was a very special director like hitchcock right um or David Lean or something Kubrick, like that. Yeah. But the 30s, Kubrick, but the 30s had transitions and moves like I've never seen before, right? And I go, what, what is this? And I started thinking about it. I go, well, 1930, 1927, 27, 28, sound came in. Before sound, they had to rely strictly on the visual. So they were well flexed in the visual and opticals, right? Mm-hmm. You look at Metropolis and the optical, multi layer oh. opticals, okay? Oh. And the framing in that. Oh, so they started leaning more towards dialogue and now da, 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 they started going away from technique of the visual. Uh, and that was a, a an epiphany I came to. I don't know if it's correct, uh, film theory, but an epiphany I came to this last year because I've been deep diving on 30s films. And I'm like, oh, my God, the, I, I'm, I'm so embarrassed that I thought that we can outskill them. You know, it's like, no, you can't. Creativity is creativity. It doesn't age, you know.
0: I mean, you look, at, you look at something like Seven Samurai or you look at, you know, any of the Uriku films yeah. that were Rashomon or all of those. You just start looking you're like, oh, okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, yeah. I, I, I just, okay, I got, I got but it. But they're sir. doing I it I at a time it. when there was no video monitors. They, they couldn't yeah. even, Sergio Leone didn't have a video monitor with those close-ups.
0: Bro, watch I Am Cuba. Are you kidding me? Watch that oh, movie I Am yeah. Cuba yeah. and you're just sitting there like who never heard of these filmmakers doing yep. stuff with like five pound cameras that look like they're doing it with an iphone they're you know yep. putting things on, on 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 wires and putting them in the middle of the street while there's a revolution going like what is going on and that was what the 60s it was in the 60s if i'm not mistaken yeah it was like I early believe so. 60s yeah it was and it was hidden until, yeah well that's amazing
1: it's like that's what's amazing about those films. Like it was much tougher, much heavier equipment, like you're saying, right? Oh, um, Communication—they didn't even have walkie-talkies in early cinema, right? <laughs> they didn't have crowd control. They didn't have a lot of things. It was a lot tougher. And then you had to get printed scripts, do everything by phone. There's no digitally sending the print or, or, or script to well, someone across town to read it right away. It's—it's it's amazing. It's like it just shows you something. Like put those people nowadays, oh, they're they're running circles around all of us. I mean, can you can they already were, uh, but let's say
0: can you imagine Kubrick with today's technology?
1: Can you imagine Hitchcock? No, I with wonder, I am so that's that that's a that's a fascinating thing you just said. Like what would Hitchcock and Kubrick oh, embrace man. digital? Or would they do like these other handful of directors who'd no no I was, I'm only gonna shoot in film. Um, which I well I thought I was gonna be one of those guys in film school. I was like, I'll never leave film. Like, I'll never leave film. No. Mate. We talked about it before. It's like, I love the control of digital. I love knowing I can sleep at night. I got it.
0: Right. You don't have to and wait the next day to, it. oh, you roll the dice. Oh. oh, was the gate, was there a hair in the gate? Oh, was there, the, oh.
1: Great monitor. You can see, you can put your LUD on there. You can see how the set and the costumes react to it. Like, no, yeah. I'm not into the mystery, dog. Forget that.
0: <laughs> Agreed. But you got, but the thing is that both you and I had the opportunity to shoot 35. To shoot 16, to shoot Super 8, to play with those Mm -hmm. things, you know, to do cross processing in the lab, to like get image, get image saturation with- with
1: And I am nostalgic about, I am nostalgic about it in one way. I like to emulate it. I like the look of it. It doesn't mean I want to use that tool to get the look. I want to use this tool to get the look, you know, Um, because this tool gives me greater comfort and control and I can even do my blow ups and repos and stabilizations much more, uh, not easier. It just, uh, there's another word for it. Uh, it, it, it comes down to quality and control and, and people can debate this thing about, you know, you hear different people say that, uh, a 35 millimeter is 8k or 10k. And then you're hearing another DP tell me, no, it's nothing better than 1080. It's pixels versus, uh, grain, depending on the yeah. stock you pick, you know? So, you know, at a certain point, your human eye after four, four K is not, I, I, it, even you two to okay. I dare, dare the audience member to know the difference, you know.
0: You really can't tell the difference. I mean, then now there's a little bit difference with the uh, H, or the, I forgot what's called with the color grading.
1: When you HDR, have a little, yeah, HDR, you get a little bit more color. I did a, we did a pass, and I mean, it's a it's trip, it's... man. Dude, it's a trip. It they is... bring in two monitors and they're coloring my Maxine's coloring the standard one, I forgot what Rec. 709 or whatever it is, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. and then the HDR, and um. Depending on your TV screen, you can get the HDR version of the Continental. Right. And at first, I'm like, "Well, I don't understand what I know what HDR is. You know how it grabs the highlights and the mids and lows and yeah, it yeah. balances it out, basically in your phone. I know what it is in theory, but when I'm looking at this image, that's HDR, looks more contrasted to me. It's popping more. Mm-hmm. I go, "Well, I, I didn't think that's what HDR was, but it, there's something going on there that I actually prefer that over the Rec 709 or whatever, if I'm yeah, the yeah. correct term, um, um." We do like that, It's though. quite but fascinating.
0: But, the, but, the, but your whole filmography is that. You like poppy stuff,
1: dude. Like, look at, Bach, you like stuff, like, look at Bach, Book of Eli. Yeah, you know, contrast. God.
0: I you mean, do a contrast, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, You're crunching. You're crunching the blacks. You're yeah. popping the highlights. You're making things a little bit poppier. That's
1: my style, too. I love. Yeah. It. But the difference is, if you, I don't know what type of, type of TV you're watching. I'm, I'm assuming you have a huge TV you're watching the show on. And not I your do, laptop. Sir.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Okay. No, yeah, I, just it, is, I was
1: watching it on this
0: last night. It was great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the difference is, is like—is that a problem? Is that a DP, problem? I shouldn't, I shouldn't watch it. No, as no, as no, as well? <laughs> no. We're talking. We're just talking about that generation. Get ready for it. And we all. We. By the way, it's funny, but we all do have to be aware of that, right? Sure. Um, yeah. But like, if you look at the lighting style of episode one and two, I chose this really young DP, really dope. He's a hippie dude. Long hair from Norway, right? Sweet <laughs> man. Just an artist, right? But he he's more into ambient light. You know, fill the room oh. little smoke and mm-hmm. not hard light, soft light. And I started learning along the way that I actually love the way it looked. It's not what I've done with the, in the past. You're talking about contrast. It's harder to do contrast with a lighting style like that. It's yes. European lighting. Oh, it's a big uh. so what I learned during the show was um when you couple that with these old lenses. It can get dangerous you have to watch out very, right very. so I, I get to the third episode with peter deming shoots it who i've worked with on from hell and a bunch of other stuff old time he's been around he's done austin powers he's done the scream series he's done sure, sure. uh lost highway with david lynch and drive he's been around so at a certain point we're shooting and i can't wait for you to see three um we're shooting and he just goes howard trying to introduce a little hard light here and i didn't know what he meant right because sure. I do have in my style guide noir lighting, this, that, shadows, silhouettes, and you need hard lighting for that kind of stuff, usually, okay? So we wrapped the whole thing, and I see him at the premiere, and I'm talking to him, and I said, I know what you mean now. Moving forward, we have to be careful with these lenses. I love what they've done for the show, because they, they funky it up with that kind of more diffused look, but moving forward with this, I want to use more hard light, and I now know what you were saying that day, Peter, like, thank you, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Because... This is why, actually, when you see episode three, you'll see what Peter Deming did with those lenses. Mm-hmm. He's still within the same style of lighting, but he's, we're, he's like, we're creeping into, we're not using handheld. I got out of handheld because I, I'm actually not a fan of it. I think me and you talked about it before. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not controlled to me. It works in the John Wick world for certain things. And Chastahouski does it wonderfully because he's not doing it in that Paul, Paul Greengrass style. <laughs> Chasta is more it's almost a. it's almost a steady cam the way they use it for mm-hmm. piano you know mm-hmm. um we went a little bit more raw with the staircase scene because it's the 70s you can get away with a throwback handheld look you know but you'll see if you go from episode one two and three there is not one handheld shot in three there's a little in two and there's a few dutch tilts in there that I had to adjust and put in because I'm not into big into dutch tilts but that was that director's Thing and you know, oh, I had to adjust the other episodes because of it. So I was able to go put a Dutch tilt in one. That's what's great about TV. You can oh, well, that director did that. It's not necessarily in my style guide, but I can course correct this a little bit for the audience. You know,
0: you know, it's it's um, uh, interesting. I, I shot with the uh, Super Bowl Tars back in the day on a red for the same reason you shot with the airy and these older mm-hmm. the Super Bowl Tars were like dirty from the forties very hard like it, it thing was like i forgot Lashom made them i don't know who made them but anyway, like, they were like they gave it a funky look because the red had this hard edge digital thing airy oh, first I, one, yeah yeah the very the older ones had really hard edges yeah. and i'm like i can't i can't i need something to soften it up mm-hmm. but then you start throwing a
1: little ambience in there a little, a little smoke in there yep <laughs> you, you, you yeah. get you by get the way body. the red used to eat up smoke did you notice oh, that? Oh yeah, yeah. The yeah, first yeah, test it, we did. It, 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 like you film, did would, it. It would register on film, the red would just eat it up and make it go away in a way. Like it, you had to so smoke you, the room more for a red.
0: Right, exactly, and then when you start, when you know how it is with smoke, like the Tony Scott stuff, like when you start Tony Scotting it up a little bit, it's hard, yeah. man, it's hard to control the light.
1: Yes. It's hard to, yeah. and, then, and you try to match it for cuts yep forget it dude i mean you always you you always run into that problem but if you if you have a good stage that's the only way to control it yeah that's the only way and
0: you have to you know what i want to do people on it
1: (laughs) yeah no yeah you definitely have to have a good uh what do you call it's uh, the the effects guys the unset effects guys that do it the dp and gaffer have to uh, keep their eye on it the camera operators keep his eye on it the director has to keep his eye on it and everybody's like checking the levels and now you can reference the other shot now, thank God. Like mm-hmm. back in the day you could you couldn't do that. But it's interesting because Peter does some of that you're talking about. You'll see in episode three when you get there, there's a lot of shaft lighting come starting if to play into to, it early yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. You but need that that's why way. I want to bring Kirk. Well I want to bring Kirk back because if you'll have us, if you'll have of us course, and we course. could do because we're lining up episode three. There's a lot of screenings going on for episode three, uh, with Collider and you know, there's other screenings going on around town and they're actually, you know, um hopefully uh this thing in Hollywood will be over soon, you know, I'm I'm praying. Nice. And everybody will be able to to meet the the actors and, and and the others. But for Kirk and I to come talk to you about three, because I think you you're you're gonna see a lot of stuff in there that we grew we grew up we grew up on. Nice. Well That's all I'm of gonna course say.
0: you're oh of course you're welcome, sir. Anytime and I'd love to talk to Kurt as well. Um, I have to ask you this one question, man. What was the toughest day on set? How did you overcome it, man?
1: Oh, jeez, man. You have to pray you, this is this is why we went three and a half hours. We are <laughs> the need same to, generation we
0: Well, keep <laughs> going. No, well we'll 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 start what, wrapping it up soon. I just
1: <laughs> We were still wrapping it up, but I no, I mean you hit me with something that I gotta say is like you saw it because you 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 you've seen the first episode. Um it was the toughest shoot day of my life. is that party scene. That yeah. appears to be a wonder, but we stitched together three shots. Yeah. And the issue was, and I don't want to come off unkind here. I'm going to say try, I'm going to try to thread the needle here. If you're conducting an orchestra, and one instrument's out of place, you know you you have to have a little talk with the the flute player. Mm-hmm. And if the instrument's still out of place, you might have to think about replacing the flute player. Mm-hmm. Well, we had mm-hmm. the the flute player and the viol- violinist was uh, out of tune, and um, I saw some early signs of it and the 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 shot was way more challenging than it had to be okay because if you uh correctly plan it you get your your extras and pods you know you're dealing with animals you know you're dealing with airless. you're dealing with a lot of things in that in that shot yeah um you're hiding things you're revealing things um you need the whole and that's what i love about a wonder that's what i told the crew out in, in budapest and they were wonderful by the way had nothing to do with the Hungarian crew because they were fucking fantastic, okay? It was either an American or British I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> uh, and they're supposed to be fantastic. Um, what I said is what I love about Wonders is, is you can uh, get a lot done quickly. That's one thing. You have the aesthetic thing is another thing which you know about, right? Mm-hmm. The, thing, the other thing it does that most people don't um, give enough um, weight to is no one has an escape not the actor, not wardrobe, not hair, not makeup, everybody's exposed, not the grips. Exactly. Everybody's exposed, okay? Mm-hmm. So they, they get to this heightened sense of, a, they go into fighter pilot mode because they don't want to be the weak link. And if you drop a Warner on them every other day or every day, a mini Warner or a long runner, you know, you don't have to do it a lot. You're just doing it to save time on a certain section of the scene or whatever. They, your crew gets into fighter pilot mode because they don't want to be the weak link. And they all super they are super focused. Now, if you do coverage, they start to unfocus because they know that you can cut around a mistake. It's if an equipment piece drops, if an actor flubs a line, if hair and makeup don't get the hair out of a nine time, they'll let the take continue. So it does this wonderful thing mentally to the crew. And so I have this scene that you, you were asking the question about. And by the end of it, it just felt like I went ten rounds with Mike Tyson because I didn't have the. I had the proper support of eighty percent of the crew, ninety percent of the crew. That ten percent really, really affected um, the day on what shouldn't have been an easy shot, but what should have been on a, a, a normal one or one day if it was properly done by everybody being at their best. But again, this is what post is for. This is what uh, why I repo, why I stabilize, uh, why I build in hidden cuts. Um, and this is why people, you know, sometimes people tip, like there's some filmmakers. that will take swipe at other filmmakers. Like that's not a real winner. Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's it's for the audience to to have the impression you're doing something in real time. The audience doesn't know that just because you know that jackass doesn't mean um, it's not about how you do it. It's about the result, basically. You know. So yeah, so tough. The toughest day of my career.
0: You could say the same thing about Rope. That's not a real wonder. I'm like, okay, but it's Hitchcock and he was doing it in seven cuts. Shut the hell up. Yeah. Like, yeah. I come mean, come on, come shut on. the hell up. No,
1: that's just, that's the, just. I mean, he still uh, has troll. the record. He kind of still has the record, like, if you think about it, because it's per reel during film, he has the record.
0: Oh, no one touched him. Yeah, no one. I mean, he was insane. Yeah.
1: He was insane, but we could,
0: we did like yeah. uh, three hours on Hitchcock alone. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to ask you a few questions, sir. I ask all the guests. <sighs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, See how if they've changed a bit since last you were here. What advice would you (laughs) give? What advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break in today's
1: business? I remember my last answer, I think. Uh And it had to do with talent. And sometimes you can develop your talent but you have to know if you have the talent for what you're trying to do. If, you, if you're if you saying filmmaker by director, yeah. you mean director, yeah. not writer, not cameraman, filmmaker. Sure. Um, recognize if you have talent early, if you do keep going, if you don't, and you have to be honest with yourself, get out of the way is what I said in the last podcast because you're wasting space for people who need that space, right? There's plenty of other jobs in this business that you can do. Um, breaking into the business, I think, I would say just keep shooting, no matter who's watching. If it's just your mom or you in a room alone, that's all I do in Prague. I have 250 shorts that nobody's ever seen. Yeah, I know. I've, seen, I've, seen, I've seen a couple of them. I've seen a couple. Oh, I, kind of, I sent a couple to you. Like those are the ones I make available to my friends. Like a handful of them, I think five or ten, right? Um, yeah. I don't. I don't. Uh, uh, what do you call it? I, 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 you, you practice your craft, and the most important thing. It's like I don't say this enough. It's like. You have to be willing to do it when nobody's watching, and still love it. Beautiful. If you love it when nobody's watching, you got yourself a plan.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful answer, sir. That should be a t-shirt. I'm just saying. Um,
1: <laughs> right under hustle.
0: Right under T a t-shirt, Albert. Right <laughs> um, if you could go back in time and talk to little Albert, what advice
1: would you give him? I now this is a new answer. I know. It I think is, this is a new answer. Yeah. A question yeah. The new answer is when you're young, you think wisdom or being wise is goes hand in hand with being smart. um It actually doesn't. I think wisdom means to me I don't know the literal definition it means to me you learn from the past and you adjust, and that makes you smart enough you're, you're smart enough to adjust, let's say, and you collect enough enough of these experiences that you know what to do quite clearly in the future. And I would tell my younger self to go easy on myself and and to not take it so hard that this is part of the process of trying to become wiser in this job or this position. And that you cannot rush that. You can't rush wisdom. Wisdom takes time. You, you, You can rush talent a lot. Like you've seen some flash in the pan, boxers, lawyers filmmakers writers entertainers filmmaker you that you've seen them like woof super talented but they don't have the wisdom yet but they're still super talented and they can rush their talent you know
0: what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn whether in the film business or in life
1: uh pa- patience you know same uh, answer uh, <laughs> you, you, you know like you yeah but you know like we we you have to hurt and wait but that thing i think we talked about last time it's like don't get involved in every argument that takes place in front of you that has to do with your film. It's a waste of time. Let those people figure it out mm-hmm. and you know, poke in prod a little bit and kind of have a, a I've learned how to do this, I'm never good because I think I have a little bit of an OCD problem. Mm-hmm. As I wasn't good at tuning out the room when you're in a conference room and people are talking. Because sometimes you'll have your production designer and, and prop guy not on the same page and they may be arguing off to the side. Or the the picture car guy might be arguing with somebody else. And you think it's an unhealthy thing to see an argument, but it's quite healthy. And if you get involved in it, it's going to stress you out and you're not going to be able to do your job. They're there to help you and they're there to do their jobs uh, professionally. And just because they're creatively arguing about something uh, doesn't mean you need to get involved because that can tax you. And what you need to do is have a way of just making it noise. And if you hear a trigger word where you need to get in and stir the pot one direction, you do that. But generally stay out of it because the, the best idea usually comes out when the, the the creative crew starts having a healthy debate.
0: Very good. And, of course, the toughest of all the questions, three of your favorite films of all time.
1: <laughs> Did I answer this one before? Yeah. We, we I, talked about I one, I remember. Yeah. They remain right. the same. Okay. okay. Mid- Midnight Cowboy is number one for a lot of reasons. Uh, taxi Driver got no- knocked out of the number one position long ago um, by... Taxi Driver was there forever, okay? Um, it's Midnight Cowboy. It's Man Bites Dog is second. And Taxi Driver is third. That's what we remember, yeah. Man Bites Dog. Because
0: there's very few people who know that freaking film. And it
1: is amazing. Criterion collection. you had a run. Me and you had a run on We We went on a run about it, okay? Because oh, it's no, so it inside is, baseball, too. It is such a criteria but, collection. You look at the film, <laughs> it is. But if you look at the film... There's no reason at face value if somebody looking at my list should believe that should be number two over Taxi Driver. Oh. And the reason is, forget all the stuff that me and you know, and I'll, I'll finish with this it's a, mm-hmm. the for the reason, is um, it's the only film in the history of me watching films that made me question my own moral compass. <laughs> I was okay with a bunch of shit in that film into that one scene, and then I walked out, and I, I draw the line there, and then i got it on criterion laser and i watched the rest of it and i go oh my god it's not the film it's me it this is a statement about me and that's far more important than watching a, a mentally deranged taxi driver done well by my hero scorsese sure a, a, a film that that shakes you like that and rejiggers. and by the way midnight cowboy did the same it made me question yeah. a lot of things about uh growing up and what i saw with my mom and my dad and mm-hmm. you know uh, what's you know there you know there's a, the debate between me and my daughter about whether they're two heterosexual men in love or whether they're repressed homosexuals and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. form a bond. Let's say okay, sure. and you can have that debate. And I finally found the answer, and I was wrong. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that film is just special to me because a foreigner made it from England. John Schlesinger came to New York, and it also blows my mind that this lunatic, uh, what's his name, the actor, uh, John this right wing lunatic. John Boyd uh, like he's gone. Yeah, he's gone so far like almost almost into Nazi territory because my daughter walking in with her dog right now. I'm moving the camera. Go ahead. go ahead. Yeah, because me and him go along a little. (laughs) Um, No, it's like I couldn't I couldn't believe that John Boyd would do. You have to be liberal minded and open minded to do that type of film, you know, so that that shocked me. Oh, and deliverance. He did deliverance too I gotta watch that again i I do no i got I gotta watch that film again because I haven't seen it since my childhood
0: and, 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 and that says a lot about, about you, and that says a lot about you that you saw deliverance in your childhood.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, my parents took me to inappropriate movies
0: I well, back then there was also only so many Disney films playing in the theater, so there was it was deliverance True. or nothing
1: my dad took <laughs> me my dad took me to see all that jazz and i, I distinctly remember the nudity and the open heart surgery and i recently saw it again and went on a bob fossey run and it's exactly as i remember except for the nudity when you're a kid it's amplified you're like oh my god you know yeah um it's a but that's a fantastic film and so is cabaret like i deep dive on him and he's he's just amazing
0: albert it is a pleasure and as always talking to you where can people find and watch your new opus the continental
1: it's on Peacock the premiere episode was last Friday the 22nd i believe but i'm jetpack, mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um that was episode 1 episode 2 is um the 29th friday the 29th
2: mm-hmm.
1: episode 3 is october the 6th on a friday and get to episode 3 everybody because it's building that's it's all building towards how winston gets that hotel and then it, mm-hmm. it builds to an explosion and i'm telling everybody that i'm going to see alex again with kirk ward our showrunner Please. to discuss yes. episode 3 in the near future,
0: very near future, I can't wait to have you back. And last question: Is there another? Are we going to keep expanding this John Wick world?
1: That's up to like Lionsgate and the producers. I have no idea. It's a it's a wonderful um, world. You know, you can go so many different directions with so many different crazy characters. I suspect they will. They have the and the arm is a ballerina coming out next year, mm-hmm. um, and it it feels like it's ready made for it plus it's fresh it's not a superhero ip you know right so it's a it's an adult I, I, ip I, I, an whether adult i mean yeah, yeah. exactly and whether that that's what's see you pointed out something i never heard before it's
0: an adult ip never
1: there's really heard it, it, it's an it's adult
0: pg-13 ip or pg ip there's wow. never adult ips out there really like well, there should that, be a taxi driver ip
1: <laughs> like they
0: should do another <laughs> like what
1: let's go into that but world. that's fascinating <laughs> That's fascinating. I think like whether I'm involved or not, it doesn't matter. I'm just a fan of the, the, the show that we did. I'm a fan of the movies and they keep making them and they're good. I'll keep watching them.
0: brother. as always, thank you for coming on. We can keep going and I wish we could, but we're going to come back uh, with
1: Kirk. And we, we have a part two. We have a part two. We'll have a part okay. two. My pleasure as always, my friend. Thank you thank so you. much. You too.
0: I want to thank Albert so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge and experience and stories with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 719. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.